of all of the organisms known to science, be they plants, fungi, bacteria, protists, animals great and small, there is one group that stands well above them all, the beetles. That's right, we have more named species of beetles than any other group, and that's the subject of today's new species podcast. Four new species of beetles. Let's get started. New Species, the podcast where we talk to scientists about their discoveries of organisms that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We talk to the authors of these studies to get behind-the-scenes stories, to talk about why these discoveries should matter to everyone, not just scientists, and to help people better understand the wonderful biodiversity of our planet. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast. Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Patrick, and today I'm joined by Dr. Adam Brunke, a research scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada and the Canadian National Collection of Insects, Arachnids, and Nematodes. He's here today to talk to us about his recent paper in Zookeys, in which he and his co-authors describe four new species of Aliocarine staphylinids, or what we call rove beetles. Welcome, Adam. Thanks for having me, Brian. Oh, it's my pleasure. I have a special spot in my heart for beetles. The, the first species I ever got to name was an Aliocarine staphylinid, uh, named after my son. And I described that with one of your co-authors and another person who's in Japan. And actually, I, I, they were just kind enough to help me or to let me be on the paper. I wrote a, a small part of that, but they, they were the main authors on that. And that leads us right into the question of Nobody, whenever I would tell people about that, they'd be like, what's an aliocarine staphylinid? So what, it, what exactly is a rove beetle or an aliocarine staphylinid in this case? Uh, let's start with rove beetle. What's a rove beetle? Okay, well, rove beetles are um, actually the largest family of living animals. Uh, there are about 63,000 described species. Um, most rove beetles are recognized by having short wing covers, the elytra. And they expose um, the abdomen, which is unusual in beetles. Normally everything is kind of tank-like, but rope beetles have this long, flexible abdomen, and then they can move through the substrate. Uh, this makes them look vaguely like an earwig, minus the pinchers, um, but most are quite a bit smaller than, uh, than earwigs. Right, and just so, because we, we have a lot of people who may not know a lot about what we're talking about, you know, bugs in general have three main parts. There's the head the the thorax or the main trunk of it and then the abdomen the last part and if you think about like a, a like a ladybug or a ladybird beetle the elytra that you mentioned or or as you pronounce it elytra there's there's many different pronunciations that's the great thing about science that's the the part with the spots that would rise up on these things they're really short right and so the butt part of it that would normally be covered by those is exposed that's right. And it's really fascinating. They fold their wings up underneath those little tiny things, right? Yeah, exactly. It's like it's like origami. There's some amazing videos on YouTube of them um, getting this small wing package underneath a, a small square. It's amazing. Yeah, the, yeah, you're right. Origami is exactly the way to describe that. It's pretty amazing. And the group that you guys are working in in, in, in your paper here were the Aliocarine staphylinids. So that's a subgroup of the main family of rove beetles. What are aliocarines? What makes them different from the rest of the rove beetles? Well, um, aliocarines are in general uh, quite a bit smaller than most other rove beetles. Um, they have a very diverse uh, defense chemical arsenal in their abdomen, which is pretty cool. They use that against ants and spiders and such things. Um, they, they're in 
where their antennae attach on the head is a little different than uh, other rove beetles. Um, it's one way to recognize them, um, but they're extremely diverse. I mean, there's all sorts of different body shapes and, and things like that. Um, they are really notable in rove beetles for being kind of the neglected of the neglected. Rove beetles are most, most beetle scientists' least favorite beetles because of their difficulty and they're hard to collect and so on. And then even among rove beetle scientists, the alialkarines are kind of shunned as the, all of these things, but magnified so much more. So they're, they're even harder to identify. There's even more species. The literature is even more confusing. Um, and it's even more work to identify them. So, um, so we know so little about them. Um, that's kind of the notable thing is that they're kind of a knowledge black hole. <laughs> well, yeah. And you talk about rove beetles being the largest of all of the groups of, of any living organism, right? And it turns out the Aleocorini, which is the subfamily of this, is the largest subfamily right. of all of them, right? So it's the the largest, the most diverse. And the, the crazy part is they're tiny, like anywhere from a couple of millimeters up to three or four or five millimeters. If you get some of the really big ones, you might get six or seven in, right. in Aleocora. But outside of that, they're they're all pretty pretty small, right? Or maybe a centimeter if you get lucky. Yeah, that's right. They're, they're super tiny and... Um... And I, I would say most people would say, oh, I've never seen one, but they're actually, some species are, are super abundant. And um, quite often I'm just sitting on the balcony in, uh, in town and they land on my arm and um, they're around. It's just that, you know, people don't really pay attention to them because they're just small, uh, little bl brown, black beetles. And Yeah. Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't even recognize them as beetles because they don't have those that covering that goes over the entire abdomen. Yeah, exactly. I find them just I, I run into them pretty frequently here in town as well, just walking to and from my house. Yeah, they're 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 extremely common. And their coloration is pretty varied as well, right? They'll go anywhere from like black to the light browns to some of them even get a little splash of color on them, right? That's true. There's there's quite a few that are um sort of reddish brown and black, so they got a banding pattern. Um some of the Tropical ones get some really beautiful spots and uh, and some stripes. Um, there's even even some really magnificent things in the tropics that have big horns coming off of the the abdomen and the head and and, and there's some yeah they're really spectacular. It, you just have to get them under the microscope. That's the problem. It's usually they don't look like much unless you look at them like that. Yeah, and when people listen to these things, I don't think they appreciate always what we're talking about simply because we're, we're not doing a good job of describing it. When we say these things are small, to identify these, you have to look at the, the genitals, right? So you got to look at the naughty parts and they're internal. So you got to mm -hmm. pull them out. So the, you have to actually dissect them to identify these, right? That's right. And if you're looking at a, a one millimeter beetle, you've got to go to the very end of the beetle take the tiny little last segment off. Inside that segment is a smaller piece called the genital segment that's usually held up inside that's even smaller. And then inside that little package is the copulatory organ, or in the case of the females, the, the, the sperm storing organ. And that's even smaller than that. And then you have to safely get that to the, to the little mount that we make. And it is you really have to have patience and, and delicate hands. <laughs> it's kind of like surgery. Yeah, I remember the first time I mounted some, I just I just crushed the spermatheke, just like, <laughs> oh, whoops. <laughs> I've done my share of uh, failed dissections. 
<laughs> and the what these things one of the questions I always ask is what do these do ecologically but it's so hyper diverse for these right that's right the um actually that's another special thing about aliocrines is that um they're kind of small and obscure but there's so many species and they're very very specialized on microhabitats um there is an aliocrine or several for every tiny little piece of an ecosystem you can think of. So like a forest, for example, there's different aliocarines under pine bark versus oak bark. And then in the litter, depending on what trees form that litter, if it's dry, if it's moist, if it's shallow, if it's deep litter under the logs, the stones, there's different special aliocarines for bird's nests, mammal nests, ant nests. Um, there's insects that burrow in, in, uh, wood and in those burrows live aliocarines. There's tree holes, <laughs> there's rolled leaves on trees that aliocarines live in. There's mushrooms, dead animals, animal droppings, and that's just in a forest. So it just, it just, the diversity is enormous. <laughs> One of the people I worked with when I did that, my single little publication in, in aliocarine, uh, Munatoshi Maruyama in Japan, he worked a lot with species that hung out with ants. And he did these wonderful little behavioral studies where he found out that they were emitting these uh, what are called cuticular hydrocarbons, these little chemicals on the side that made the ants think that they were ants, that the beetles were ants. And so they would carry them around like little larvae or they would be able to run around and like steal food from them. And the ants would be like, yeah, whatever, bro. You're just one of the <laughs> other ants. And then you find out some of them, you know, they, their entire life cycle goes through a, a, a single mushroom or something crazy like that. Yeah, they're extremely diverse, very, very interesting group. Absolutely. And the, in this paper, you, you do a couple of different things. You, you do describe four new species, but you also do some synonymizing. And we'll talk a little bit about what that is and uh, taking a closer look at like where a lot of these are found um, that were thought to be in one place or another. Uh, tell us a little bit about like kind of like what's the crux of the paper in this gist, like as far as like besides the four new species, what do you mean by synonymies and what was this whole thing doing with the Nearctic, Paleoarctic stuff? Okay, so just to start, a synonymy in taxonomy is when you find out that um, one name that refers to a species actually is it's the same species, but with two names. So sometimes it's the same region, but someone's described it in 1840, and then someone described it in 2010 under a different name. And then another time, which is a little bit trickier, is that when you have a widespread species, uh, someone will describe it from place A, and then someone will describe it from place B, but it's the same thing. Um, and we discover that in the process of looking at these things in great detail, either with DNA or with dissections. Um, so Right. So in this case, we were talking about, like, say, for example, Europe. Yeah. Or, or, or even going over into Russia mm -hmm. versus North America. And people would say, well, these are on two different continents separated by oceans on both sides. Right. So there's no way that these could be the same species. But it turns out when you, do, when you look at them more carefully – so they got a name on one one continent, they got a different name on the other continent, and then somebody like you comes along and looks at them and goes, no, actually, these are actually the same thing, and that's what we call a synonymy, right? That's right. And um, aliocarines are especially prone to this because there's just so many species and things are so similar that it's so easy to uh, make those kind of mistakes. And, and just it's not necessarily like really negligent. There's just so much diversity. Um, and... Uh, with this particular project, 
we we were trying to get at things that were naturally uh, widespread. So we call those holarctic because they live in North America and Europe and Russia. And so if you look at the top of the globe, their distribution is continuous along similar habitats. But then also we look at these artificial distributions, which is when um, populations of, of species get transported by accident from Europe to North America, which is usually the case, or vice versa, which is unusual but happens from North America to Europe. And there's a special word for that when that happens, right? When we have – a lot of people would confuse that with invasive species, but there's a word that's more that, – that's a, yeah. I've got a broader context to it. What is that word? Um, we choose to use the word inventive because it's a bit more neutral. Um, words like invasive or introduced, they imply that the species is, uh, if, an inv- if it's an invasive species, that usually implies that there's a, a great ecological cost or disruption to the species. And then introduced even implies that it was um, uh, introduced on purpose, which sometimes happens. Uh, we make controlled introductions of things to control bio, for biocontrol, but the vast majority of non-native species were accidentally transported there. So we say that they're inventive in that range. And by accidentally, it doesn't even have to be by people. It could be wind currents or or who knows what manages right. to get it over here. You know, there are colonizations that happen around the world naturally as well. And inventive is that broad term that says we don't know which of the categories it falls into, but we just know that it's not normally found here. Exactly. And it had never been described here before or never found here before, and suddenly it is. And we're pretty sure that this is a, an old, you know, from, from another place. Yeah, inventive is an, is an interesting concept uh, that I know that one of your co-authors, Jan Klimaszewski, has looked at quite a bit. And uh, particularly in this group, and I know that a lot of people have thought about this in, in other groups as well. Why is it important that we, I mean, we kind of touched on this. Why is it important that we try not to go too far and just call something invasive? What's, you, you mentioned a negative connotation to that word. You work for Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. Right. And part of what their their job is, is a lot like here, the USDA in the United States. Uh, those words have can have profound impacts. For example, what would that mean if we called something invasive? Right. So um, Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada and uh, its sort of partner institution, which is the CFIA, which is a bit like the USDA, um, they have a regulatory function. So as soon as you call something invasive, we have like a legal responsibility to respond to that. So we need to figure out where it is, uh, what it's doing, how much damage we try to model, like what kind of economic loss is going to happen, how to mitigate that. It it basically like it's a call to arms as soon as you call something invasive. So we need to kind of start with a more neutral standpoint and then see how it will uh, go. Right. Because when you mobilize that, that costs a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> like all of a sudden you're, you're diverting resources from a lot of places to try to control something that maybe doesn't need to be controlled. Maybe it's, its impact is minimal right. uh, in the environment overall. So now that we have an idea of what these different things are, how the synonymies come around, can you tell us a little bit about how you found these new species? I know there's a couple of different ways. Some of them were already in collections. Some of them were, were collected by you and your co-authors, that sort of thing. Uh, tell us a little bit about this process of of the species that were involved in this paper, not even just the new ones, but all of them. Okay, so um, I guess this paper is a 
bit of a, an update paper. So there's, it's, it's a, it's a collection of all the discoveries we've made since the last time we did an update paper and, and which sounds a bit general, but aliocarines, the knowledge is accumulating so rapidly that we have to make these, um, periodic updates pretty regularly, um, because we keep getting new material all the time and, and, and things keep showing up in collections. Um, Another thing that is, uh, was a big focus of this study is that we amassed this very large sequence database um, on North American and European beetles. And what we thought to do was to combine all the sequences from these two regions. And since we know that there's been a lot of uh, transport of the beetles back and forth, we combined all this data so that um, to see if maybe we detect things that weren't detected before, or maybe realize some synonymies. Um, but for the new species, um, one really cool thing is that uh, two of these actually came from uh, a, a project where the University of Guelph would send these insect traps to elementary schools and the schools would set them up near the properties uh, in places like a field next to the school and so on. And then they would submit. It's a, it's a weird little, it's called a malaise trap, right? right. It's like a weird little tent-like thing. So things would fly up to like a little collecting cup at the top. That's right. So it, it, it collects primarily um, active flying insects. So if, if it's a flightless thing or something that's weak flying, it won't be collected. But it does collect a decent snapshot of what's around. Um, so they submit this to uh, University of Guelph and then they do sequencing and photographs and things and and then they return them a bunch of names. But as with most beetles, we don't actually have names on these sequences yet. So we but we do get the sequences. So the cool thing is we can look through these clusters of sequences and see uh, are they new? What are these things? Um, and one of our new, new species, Isoglossa uh, triangularis, is actually only known from that trap uh, set up by an elementary school in British Columbia, which is amazing. It's just, I'm sure it's elsewhere. It's absolutely in Oregon and Washington State and, and probably in Alaska too, but it, it's only known from that one trap set up in a rather unassuming place. Uh, and that's just how fragmentary everything is in aliocarines. You you can you can just bump into discoveries, which is really cool. I bet that excited the kids a lot when they found out they had a new species. Yeah, I bet. Um, I think uh, they probably found even more things. I mean, this is just aliocarines. They probably found even more yeah. things, more discoveries. Um, and then actually another one of the new species wasn't only collected, but uh, some specimens were collected by this uh, elementary school program in Ontario. So that's already two new species that they've, that they've helped to find. All right. So part of this is just by using community science, getting some, some elementary schools coming in. And then you have some other ways that these were collected too. You collected one of these yourself, you said about a decade ago when we were talking before we started recording, right? That's right. Um, in about 2010, I was running traps in, uh, in Ontario soybean fields because we wanted to know what kind of natural predators live there. Uh, and so I was working with Jan Klimachewski at the time. It was when I first started working with him. Um, I even collected, so that beetle that you described, um, Myrmidonota, I actually collected that in Ontario. So that's kind of a cool circular thing there. Um, <laughs> We have a strange connection. We do. So I collected uh, Myrmidonona Adenai, and um, it was quite a bit far far from where it was first described. But um, 
so we identified a lot of that material to species, and that was really great, but Ontario is quite a bit farther south than what Jan was normally working in, because he works in Quebec City, which is quite farther north and a little bit less diverse. So Ontario is a bit of a challenge for us because it's a lot more species. Um, so several of the things remained, you know, species one, species two, no names. And I kind of forgot about it for a long time. And, uh, and then 10 years later, um, we did some sequencing of, of some specimens and compared them to our, uh, to our unknowns. And we finally started getting somewhere because we didn't even know what genus this thing belonged to. It was kind of just lost, uh, floating. Uh, so we had an idea of what it was related to finally. And then, uh, we, we started looking at its closest relatives and okay, not that, not that. And finally concluded that it, it was a new species. But, uh, it, sometimes these things take a long time because the knowledge just is so fragmentary. And you mentioned early on in this that the fieldwork for these can be quite challenging because they're, they're just so small and difficult. But what kind of challenges have you run into trying to collect these things in the field? Like any good field stories about all of these? Well, I guess I can think of one thing. It, it, it was definitely uh, during it, it, more of this agricultural sampling. What we were doing, um, we were trying out something called suction sampling, which is uh is you take a leaf blower and you turn the fan around and then it actually sucks up insects into a net and i was doing this on soybean plants at different times of the day to see if the rove beetles were climbing the plants uh, including aleocarines so because we were doing this round the clock i was doing this in a field running a gas motor uh into the night like two in the morning and and so on and uh one of these nights the cops showed up and uh, <laughs> that was a little bit scary because it was just like, okay, well, what do you say? And, uh, you know, they, someone had made a call and that they said that some people were in the field with running around with chainsaws. And <laughs> apparently that was me. <laughs> so they You're came. Like, no, it's they, a reverse leaf blower. Yeah, exactly. They came, they heard the story, they had a laugh. Obviously, I wasn't very threatening. And, uh, <laughs> and they moved on, but I was I was pretty scared. Uh, <laughs> Hello, sir. No, everything's fine. Yeah, exactly. That was that was a bit. That was about it. Um, <laughs> and I've had other times where I've fully gotten lost. I've been in the tropics. Um, you know, you get very focused when you collect grow beetles. You get very focused on microhabitats. And you're zeroed in, you know, looking for that tiny thing and that tiny thing. And sometimes you stop paying attention to how many lefts you made on the trail or, you know, reference points. And I've, I've hiked up a bit of a, a, a peak and then kind of forgotten which side of the hill I was on. Uh, and then you have a bit of a moment of panic where you're kind of thinking, well, was it that way? Or was it that way? And uh, <laughs> lots of things like that. But I don't have, I don't have too many... Um, too many dangerous collecting stories, which is probably a good thing. <laughs> yeah, that's probably yeah, I'm, I'm sure that that's a good thing, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so now you've collected species, you've got them in the lab, uh, you've determined they're new species, and four of these pop out as new. We've already talked about two of them, right. three of them, in fact. Uh, how did you pick the names? Uh, your names are, are I, and I don't mean this in any bad way, but they're, they're fairly utilitarian. They are. Right? So they, they're very descriptive. So tell us a little bit about that process. Well, in Aleocarines, there's so many new species. So 
usually we are pretty utilitarian. I also trend a bit towards that in general because I like things to be as descriptive as possible. Um, I try to pick out something like morphological that's distinctive. Usually it has to do with the most diagnostic features so that it keeps, and pe when people say the name, they, they kind of know what, what to look for. Um, something like Inipeta impressicolis is very descriptive because both males and females have this giant pit in the middle of the pronotum, which is the section uh, behind the head, uh, which is kind of unusual for that genus. So it's easily recognized. And um, other times, because there's so many closely related pairs of species that sometimes externally look exactly the same, um, we add the this prefix pseudo, which is basically means like deceiver or false, um, and we add it to the, the species that's already described that it's closest related to. So in the case of Philegris pseudolevicolis, it's extremely similar to uh, this what Levicolis, which is the Western species, but pseudolevicolis is an Eastern species. Uh, so we split that into two. Um, so that's, that's pretty cool. And common. so basically that's saying this is not Levicolis. Yes. This is the other Levicolis. This is the other one. And, <laughs> and, and up until this study, we were calling everything across Canada Levicolis. So it's good to make that distinction. So those are really common things. And, and if you look at the Canadian Aleocarines, the number of names that have pseudo in them is quite large. <laughs> we do that over and over again. <laughs> Well, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it, it, it does its purpose. It says, okay, well, it's the false version of this right. or not that. Yes. Yeah. Let's back up just a little bit and talk about the title of your paper. You have two words in there besides aliocarini, which we've already discussed, uh, and synonymies is another one, uh, that I think people may sometimes hear if they get into the science world, but they don't really know what they mean. Can you tell us what Nearctic and Palearctic are? Okay, sure. Um, so these are... Um official or classical names of, of regions of the globe. Um, and we use them, they're useful to us because they generally have a shared uh, group of species. And then if you kind of cross the line, there's another group of species. So Nearctic refers to basically Canada and the US and it's one region. And then Palearctic is Europe and parts of northern China and Russia, and it's another sort of the temperate zone of the other side of the ocean. Um, and of course, there's between these regions, we have like overlap, like a little like uh, regions of, of, of species kind of in the middle. But generally, they're very helpful to have these categories, because when we say Nearctic, we really mean like, for the most part, temperate North America. Right. And these are interesting terms, because I even though, for example, on the on the let's go with the like Asia, there are at least three different what we call biogeographic regions that can all meet in one place. I, I interviewed a guy named Ali Reza Zamani from who's originally from Iran, and he was talking about places in Iran where three of these meet, mm -hmm. right, all in one place. And what that means is that there's normally large – these aren't just arbitrary lines drawn. They're following like mountain ranges where it would be very difficult for a species to get from one side to the other unless they can fly. And even then, that can be a challenge type right. of thing, right? So these have natural boundaries to them, although the the Nearctic one's a little weird. It's the Rio Grande River yeah. <laughs> uh, for the most part. But but largely, it's it's – it's not completely arbitrary in that way. There, you do actually change temper, temp, you know, kind of like temperature zones and climates and that sort of thing as you go that far south. But 
Yeah, it's very interesting stuff to think about that there are these regions of the earth where like largely we would expect to find these types of things here and these types of things here. Nobody can see me doing this with my hands in the air, but I'm like <laughs> pretending I'm looking at a globe circling things. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's useful. They're, they're approximations, but still very useful. We, we basically, it's like anything in biology. We, we use things knowing all the caveats, basically. Yeah, it's really funny. When I teach classes, I always ask my student, what is the number one rule of biology? Yeah. And that's that there's always an exception to the rule. Exactly. And, they, and and by the end of the semester, they always are able to quote that right back at me because I'm like, yeah, yeah, don't don't pay attention to the exception. Look at all the other stuff. The exception's cool, but look at all the other stuff. Exactly. Uh, now, the question I always try to ask people when we do these interviews, and I and it's it's kind of a strange question to ask, I think, in some ways. Why should people know about these things? Uh, the reason I say it's a strange question to ask is because there's obviously in just intrinsic value in having these species exist, right? Is there anything that we can learn from them as humans that that could help us, not just narrowly in our society? It doesn't have to be medical reasons. Like, why why, why should people care about these? I think the cool thing about aleocarines that's like a good thing is that they're really so connected to the microhabitats. So they are like a representation of biodiversity. They're... Um, when you when you learn about how specific these things are, like there's species that live only in the gravelly margins of rivers, and then you know it, every little tiny pocket is occupied, and it it really illustrates biodiversity. So um, I think that's really inspiring, and it also it's so enormous. It's I think it's really cool to to see the enormity of these of these things. It's like the scope is so large, the diversity is so large. It's so it's so cool. Um, and then the sort of more practical side is that because they're so um, tied to these places that they're, they're really good indicators of ecological change. Um, so when, when there's human disturbance or the ecosystem becomes less healthy or more simplified, I guess, these things disappear. And so they're a good reflection of that. So we use them as indicators quite often in, uh, in science um, or even just to make policy decisions. So yeah, they can be very much like canaries in the mind. Exactly. Right. The, all of a sudden this thing isn't there and why isn't it there? That's a question that could be asked. Sometimes it's for natural reasons, but more often than not these days, it's because of humans. Exactly. Well, Adam, I want to thank you for coming on today's podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time. Your, your shelf back there with the mounted insects is amazing. Most people can't see that on Zoom, but he has a really cool, he, he made sure he had a good Zoom background. <laughs> and I really appreciate you coming on here and talking to us a little bit about uh, one of my, honestly, one of my favorite groups of organisms in the planet. Thank you. Thanks so much, Brian. Once again, Dr. Adam Brunke's paper is in the June 3 issue of Zoo Keys. The title of the paper is Integrative Taxonomy of Nearctic and Paleoarctic Aleocarini, New Species, Synonymies, and Records. See the episode details for a link to his paper. To learn more about Adam, follow him on Twitter, at AJ underscore Brunke. That's at AJ underscore B-R-U-N-K-E. Check out the episode notes for more information about Adam. Be sure to follow New Species on Twitter, at Podcast Species. And like the podcast on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash new species podcast. And if you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast.